Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to redeem a radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. God is Eucharistic. That is a bold and profound claim. It's different from only saying that God gives the Eucharist or that Christ is made present in the Eucharist. To say that our God is a Eucharistic God has profound consequences for Well, everything, including how we revere and adore the Eucharist now and how we come to know God through the Eucharist. My guest today wrote an essay under the title The Key to Understanding God in which he brings forward the Eucharistic thought of the Russian Orthodox theologian Sergius Bulkakov and the Roman Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. In both, we find the concerted effort to apprehend the entire Christian life, including the intellectual life, from and toward the Eucharist. The Eucharist, in other words, is the key to understanding all things, including and especially who God is and how God is. These are deep matters with surprising relevance, which together we are going to seek to understand and consider better. Our guide, my guest, is Jonathan Sorallo, Assistant Professor of Theology at St. Midrad Seminary and School of Theology. His essay, The Key to Understanding God, appeared in the Church Life Journal in April 2022, and his new book with the University of Notre Dame Press is The Eucharistic Form of God, Hans Urs von Balthasar's Sacramental Theology. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, Lenny. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, we're going to talk today about the Eucharistic maximalism of the theologians Sergeyos Bulkakov and Hans Urs von Balthasar. Both of them seek to read every aspect of the Christian faith in this Eucharistic light, but You open an essay that you wrote on the topic with a line from St. Irenaeus of Lyon. So I wanted to start there with that line from St. Irenaeus. He wrote that, quote, Our understanding is in harmony with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist confirms our understanding. So I take this as an invitation to approach the Eucharist as the source of understanding about who and how God is, and not merely regarding what God does or gives. But I wanted to get your thoughts on this to ask you to help us understand or to make sense of what Irenaeus is emphasizing and the shift in focus that this might lead us to, especially as you follow it into these two theologians. Right. Yeah. It's it's a really interesting and important quote from Irenaeus. And I think what it points to is, you know, as Catholics, we always speak about the Eucharist as the source and summit of our faith. And that's true, sort of look at what do Catholics do, right? The mass is sort of the highlight of the Christian life. It sort of punctuates most of our major feasts, right? Confirmation, baptism, 
marriage is usually centered around the Eucharist. What Irenaeus is showing us here is that it also functions, you could say, noetically or intellectually. Now, what would it mean to say that the Eucharist is actually the center, the source in some of our intellectual life as well? Mm. Well, Irenaeus, particularly the context there, he's arguing against uh, Marcionism, which mm-hmm. is an early form of Docetism, which believed Christ wasn't really incarnate, right? He only seemed to be a man because, of course, God being spiritual, he would be somehow contaminated by taking on real flesh. And Irenaeus says that actually, because simply as a matter of fact, the Eucharist is the center of the Christian life as it was then in the second century as it is now. And if we take that seriously, then we have to say, Christ has affirmed a real carnality of our faith, right? That not only Christ himself was really incarnate, that didn't just seem to be, but really took on flesh and blood like us and rose as incarnate, right? Took his flesh and blood to heaven with him to the Father. And thus that our whole Christian life is still sort of material, right? It's not a form of docetism or Gnosticism, which is a denial of the flesh, but actually a reaffirmation of the flesh. And so the Eucharist sort of pulls thought back towards matter. Right. So in many ways, it's natural for the human mind to sort of speculate and move towards a spiritualization. And Christian theologians have not actually been immune to that tendency, right? To sort of view the church and the sacraments as sort of lower stepping stones. But if we really take it seriously, it brings us back to that sort of incarnational reality that our faith is in, as St. John says, right? That which we have seen, which we have heard with our ears, that's what we have touched with our hands. So as you were saying there, the Eucharist as the source and summit of our intellectual life, too, following from Irenaeus, and you take that opportunity, that invitation here to read more deeply or more fully across the corpus of these two theologians from different Christian theological traditions who nevertheless seem to harmonize with one another in certain respects, in important respects, not just here, but especially here in their theologies of the Eucharist and especially the way in which Eucharistic thought shapes all that they do. So before we get into some of how they think about it and present the Eucharist as the source and summit of all Christian life, including the intellectual life, for those who are not familiar with these two figures, can you just give us a a brief introduction to them so everybody knows who we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So Sergei Bogakov, is a Russian Orthodox thinker, really one of the most sort of fertile and creative minds of the late 19th, early 20th century. He was in exile from Russia. He leaves Russia and eventually settles in Paris, where he teaches most of his life at an Eastern Orthodox seminary in, in Paris, Saint-Serge. He goes through various stages in intellectually. First, he's sort of a Marxist materialist and eventually comes back to the, the Orthodox Church and becomes an Orthodox priest. Famous in particular for his theological trilogy, which is focusing on what he calls divine Sophia, right? Which is, to put it sort of quickly, the relationship between God and creation, that there's sort of a prototype of creation within God and sort of this relationship, the mirroring between God and creation, which is seen particularly in Christ and the incarnation. Hans von Balthasar is one of the most interesting Roman Catholic theologians of the 20th century. He lives from 1905 to 1988. He's from Switzerland, and most of his writing is in German. And for a while, he was part of the Jesuits, eventually leaves to start a, a secular community for lay and, and religious, lay and priestly, uh, mostly in Switzerland, called the Johannes Gemeinschaft. And he's a theologian who's most famous for his, also a trilogy of three works called The Glory of the Lord, The Theodrama, and The Theologic, which is about 16 volumes in English. Yeah, and they tend... More often, not all the time, but they tend to kind of be brought together or there's 
those who study Balthazar find their way into Balkakov, maybe the other way as well, but especially there. Why do you find they tend to go together and what brings them together, especially here on this topic? Great. Yeah, they're, they're together, one, because Balthazar read Bulgakov, mm-hmm. not a lot, um, but particularly his Lamb of God in French. He did not have access, as, as I mentioned, to the actual Eucharistic text, which is actually makes their, their consonants between the thought more remarkable. But they also have more distant or, uh, sort of thinkers in common, particularly Vladimir Soloviev, who was forerunner of the sort of renaissance of Russian speculative thought in the 19th century, who was influential for both thinkers. But also because their style of thought is quite similar. The critique that would be given, and Karen Kilby, a theologian, gives this critique, is that uh, Balthazar in particular, but this is certainly true of Bulgakov, know too much. <laughs> she would say that they have, a, they, they have a God's eye point of view. Uh-huh. Right, they claim things that one simply cannot know. Right, so the, there's sort of an unrestrained speculation in both these thinkers. Yeah. Uh, I think that's actually a misunderstanding of what's going on each and I, for each of them, and I think particularly the Eucharist points to that. Yeah. That they sort of uniquely are not sort of speculating in the abstract, right, but actually speculating in what is sort of the most obvious available data of the Christian faith, which is the Eucharist. This actually brings us, I think, to maybe a place to start with Bokagov, which you bring up in his Christology, something that also you're saying is happening in his Eucharistic theology, which actually spreads out across all of his theological work, which is that he wants to understand the import and implications of the Eucharist more deeply and is hopes to put forward questions like, and I think this is you bringing this forward from him, questions like, how is the Eucharist possible and what does the Eucharist presuppose? So this might be something that Kirby is is responding to, right? Like they're, they're asking too much. They seek to know too much. But you're saying, no, what it is is a reflection on what is actually given, a deeper fle- reflection, the center of the intellectual life on the Eucharist, and to ask very deeply, how is this possible? What does it presuppose? Before we get to how they answer, Bokagov, Balthazar, this kind, these kind of questions. Help us to understand the significance of these questions, questions like this. How is the Eucharist possible? What does the Eucharist presuppose? Yeah, that's great. I think it, it's so remarkable because it's somewhat in contrast with so much theological speculation on the Eucharist, which is usually, especially since the Reformation, defenses or critiques of transubstantiation. Mm. Right, you know, accidents remaining while substance changing, etc. Both thinkers are saying, let's take one before we even get there, right? Before we get to the question of you could say Eucharistic mechanics, right? Yeah. What changes, what stays the same. If it's true that now this bread is Christ's flesh and this wine is Christ's blood, what would have to be true in general of matter? Right? It's sort of permeability to spirit. What would have to be true of the way that God relates to creation? Are these sort of bigger sort of questions of it can't be the case that uh, the Eucharist is merely an exception, right? That we live in sort of a mechanistic, materialistic sort of world. And then on occasion, we get this very strange miracle that happens. Both are saying, if in fact the Eucharist is true, we should have some insight into how matter and spirit relate, right? How Christ relates to flesh, how the church relates to Christ, right? The sort of permeability and openness of one to the other. And you could say this is simply an expansion of the dogma of Chalcedon, right? The teaching about the person and natures of Christ. Right? Chalcedon in, in the 5th century in 451 confirmed that the two natures of Christ, divine and human, are neither confused nor mixed. Right? So how do we extend that to seeing how even in the Eucharist, 
matter and spirit, God and, and man are neither confused nor mixed together, right? It's not a blending of the two together, right? We retain our integrity as finite and created, and God can sort of permeate it from within. Yeah. I mean, if we think about this here for a moment, we could maybe tease out some of the serious consequences of not asking that question or of not of making the Eucharist simply an exception. We don't want to say it is not extraordinary, but to make it simply an exception in terms of matter, that this is something done almost over and against the created character or quality of the world as God has created it to be joined to matter or through matter made present to us. And, you know, what would the implications of that be if that were the case, if we if we were to say, no, this is just just the exception and it has no bearing on the rest of creation or what matter is itself or of how God relates to creation? Yeah, I think just to tie into the broader ecclesial context, you uh-huh. know, the, the U.S. bishops are proposing the Eucharistic revival. Right. And I think we can't have such a thing if, again, we're only insisting on the exception. Yes. Right. If we still stay sort of secular, materialistic, the world is sort of empirically given. That's sort of all it is. And then we kind of have these strange occurrences called sacraments <laughs> that sort of disrupt things. Instead, what Newman says is we need a sacramental principle. Mm. But that all of matter is sort of a parable or a window into the divine, or to see all of creation as potentially sacramental. Of course, that's not to say that the sacraments are not unique, right? In fact, they're the reason we can have a sacramental principle, right? Because we see, as the rite of baptism says, right, that God gives a power to the water, right? The water sort of, from the beginning of creation, God has prepared the water to remit sins, right? That now, in some ways, all of water can take on a sort of theophanic character. And the same thing with how the mass sort of uh, valorizes bread, right? Work of human hands, the way in which the grains, the sort of base materiality is elevated and perfected in mass and not negated. This is a very Thomistic principle that grace does not destroy, but presupposes, you could say, and perfects nature. Mm. It also reflects back upon us ourselves, does it not, in order to see maybe the completion of the Eucharistic reception, what this might mean if if only here in this bread and wine can God be joined to creation, therefore we could not be joined, brought up into Christ's person, joined in his humanity to his divine life. And so there are anthro- anthropological consequences of that too, are there not? Yeah, I think this is something that Balthazar in particular sees. He says, what happens in the incarnation is Christ gradually becomes what he says, liquefied. Mm. <laughs> and by that, he means sort of, the, this is a medieval image of the mystical wine press. Mm. And you can sort of look it up. It's a medieval image of Christ sort of being squished by the cross to sort of create the, the wine. Right? So you think right. of a wine press, the right. grapes being tread. Right? So the way in which Christ becomes permeable Right, his flesh becomes available in a way that our flesh normally isn't. Mm-hmm. Right, normally, our bodies are the way in which we distinguish one thing from another. Right, bodies are limiting. Right, what Balthazar is saying is what happens in the incarnation is Christ makes his body permeable. Just as the divine persons are permeable to one another, right, mm-hmm. the Father is always only the Father of the Son and the Spirit. And the Son is simply the Son of the Father. Right? They're not isolated from one another, but defined in their relation to each other. So Christ's flesh takes on, you could say, that permeability, right? His flesh is now not a limiting between himself and others, but actually the space that makes communion possible. 
And this leads all the way to the Eucharist, right? When we're now Christ as Eucharistic is available to the church as a whole. But then the next step is what you're pointing at is equally important. Balthazar implies here that not only is the Eucharist Christ as liquefied, but also liquefies us, right? It demands of us and creates the conditions of the possibility of ourselves being permeable and open to the others, right? The, the sort of the way in which the, you could say the blood flow of the communion of saints flows, right? Mm-hmm. There's this openness of one to the other, right? Mm-hmm. That co-su- we co-suffer with one another. Mm-hmm. Right? We offer ourselves to one another in the mystical body, just as Christ did Eucharistically. So in some ways, we become a part of that sort of Eucharistic self-giving. Beautiful. This is Leonard Lorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Jonathan Sorallo, Assistant Professor of Theology at St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. He's the author of The Eucharistic Form of God, Hans Urs von Balthasar's Sacramental Theology, which is out now from the University of Notre Dame Press. Well, let's follow up then with Balthazar here. And I want to bring forward something that you share in your essay from him on him, which is that the incarnation, this is Balthazar's view, the incarnation is not complete until Christ becomes Eucharistic. Now, that changes things. And I wonder if we've been maybe in our religious imaginations, Catholics and others, guilty of reducing the Eucharist to something like simply or more signification than than not. And by that, I mean pointing back to the real thing rather mm-hmm. than seeing the Eucharist as the completion of Christ's incarnation, the gift itself given for us, the way in which Christ comes to us. Speak to us a little bit about this central insight from Balthazar that the incarnation is not complete until Christ becomes Eucharistic and what the implications of that are. That's great. And it, this is another one of those harmonies between Balthazar and Bogaka because mm-hmm. they both come to similar conclusions independently on this. Maybe a nice sort of image to think about is why in so many icons of the nativity, you see Christ in a manger, of course, right? Which, of course, manger in French is to eat, right? There's already this sense in which Christ is given from his birth to become Eucharistic, to be sort mm-hmm. of eaten and given to the faithful. What both Balthazar and Bogakov are sort of exploiting here is what you could say is the basic sort of necessary Christian principle is that why did God become man? And the answer always has to be for our sake, right? God does not get anything out of becoming incarnate or saving us from our sins, right? It's, it's not that God needs to sort of satisfy himself, right? God is not sort of crucifying himself in order to get over his anger management issue, right? <laughs> right. God becomes incarnate for our sake, pro nobis, right? In order to sort of elevate and divinize creation. So you think what the movement of the incarnation is towards becoming interior to humanity as a whole, interior to the church, right? Where the whole corpus mysticum is, in fact, one head and members, Christ and the church. So to understand Christ moving towards the cross, and then eventually, and this is important, is that the institution of the Eucharist is before the crucifixion, right? Showing that he knows exactly where this is headed and is sort of giving, you could say, a context for the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. The crucifixion as, an, as a liturgical event, mm-hmm. right? Which has both priest, Christ as priest and victim. And eventually uh, as an offering that can be received by the church. So the whole movement is towards Christ being available to all, right? As incarnate on earth, Christ is sort of limited just as you or I are, right? In his flesh, right? There he is. He can be touched and perform miracles. 
but his goal is to become incarnate and available to the church as a whole, right? Which is why he's substantially present in the mass, in the Eucharist, in the operations of, of the priesthood, etc. Right? The movement is towards more of availability rather than less. Now, to follow this a little bit, we're going to have to, there's a, a point that we will not follow a line, a sort of logical line all the way to its conclusion. So the incarnation, Balthazar would say, the incarnation is not complete until Christ becomes Eucharistic. You bring forward this basic essential Christian question, why did God become man? You said it's always for our sake. That's why God has become man. But it does not follow, therefore, that God then becomes Eucharistic for our sake or only is Eucharistic for our sake. And here, I want to bring this to this other part of Balthazar and Bulkakov that you bring forward, which is really, maybe this is the sharpest edge of what they're saying in the Eucharistic theology, which is that God is eternally Eucharistic. And we're going to need some help unpacking this. God is eternally Eucharistic. And I suppose that would therefore mean that God does not become something that God is not through the incarnation, but actually presents, God is presented as himself. The Son is presented as himself in the incarnation. So help us with this, because this is where this becomes, you know, probably this revolution in thought is taking place, that it's beyond the limit that most go in terms of the intellectual exercises around the Eucharist. What what does it mean to say God is eternally Eucharistic? Right, yeah, and this is really getting to the uh, importance of both of these thinkers is, we often, you could think, okay, okay, as Christians, we believe in God who sort of created the world. He's sort of perfect, spiritual. And then our height of union with him is sort of this random thing he kind of picked. Whereas <laughs> Jesus, before he died, he said, wow, geez, I, I hope you don't forget me. So here's, well, what's laying around here? Here's some bread and here's some wine. So just, you know, I'll, I'll kind of dive into those every once in a while and you can remember <laughs> me. Okay, instead of that, Again, going back to Irenaeus, what if our understanding of God comes from the Eucharist, right? If the Eucharist really is the most complete sort of moment of God's self-revelation, right? The height of revelation is in Christ, and Christ as Eucharistic, you could say, his permanent and, and continual dwelling with the church in the Eucharist. If that's actually how we know who God is, maybe there's something Eucharistic about God, right? In some ways, that's what they're asking here. And what would that be? And for Balthazar, it would be that this there is an internal Eucharistia, right? Thanksgiving within the divine trinity, right? The Father eternally generating the Son and the Son eternally being generated by the Father in union with the Holy Spirit, right? That there's this thanksgiving for being eternally generated that the Father gives to the Son and the Son to the Father, right? This is eternal thanksgiving. And specifically in that logic of the total gift of self, Mm-hmm. Right. So what Christ gives us in the Eucharist is his total self-giving in a mode that's proper for us to receive from him. Right. As incarnate, as material beings, the way in which we can actually receive him is in a sort of material way, right? Through the, the physical sacraments. Okay. But that doesn't mean this is sort of a one-off. It actually means that God is eternally Eucharistic in this way. God is eternally self-giving. Right. Self-giving is an attribute of God not sort of this afterthought that Christ happens to do. So what they see as happening in the Eucharist is this translation, you could say, of the triune life into material terms. Mm-hmm. Right? So God is eternally giving of himself to himself, right? The Father to the Son and the Son to the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Now that, that sort of, what would that look like as translated, right? Say translating from English to 
Spanish or something, translate right. divine Eucharist into created Eucharist. And that's exactly what the sacrament of the Eucharist is. It's a material mm-hmm. manifestation of this permeability of self, right? This thanksgiving for the gift of being. And so in that way, I mean, in, in the most serious sense, it really is receiving the life of God, not a gift exactly. created by God for us, but it is that, but it, it, the gift that's given is the life of God. Exactly, exactly. And it's the lifeblood of God. And again, that's why divinization is the goal of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. But it's a divinization that, again, as we began, doesn't flee materiality, right? We don't become divine by becoming less human. What's given to us in the Eucharist is a form of being divine that's properly human, right? Which is a, a sort of bodily communion with the God-man. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Jonathan Serralo, Assistant Professor of Theology at St. Midran Seminary and School of Theology. He is the author of The Eucharistic Form of God, Hans Urs von Balthasar's Sacramental Theology, which is out from the University of Notre Dame Press. We've been talking mostly around his essay that appeared in the Church Life Journal in April of 2022. The title of that essay is The Key— to understanding God. I know the way that essays in the journal work. You don't always pick the titles of them. That's uh, true, yeah. Our <laughs> beloved editor, uh, Arthur does. So maybe you did write an essay with the key, the title, The Key to Understanding God, or maybe Arthur gave it. We'll leave that. We'll leave that a secret. Yeah. <laughs> so as we're talking here about God as eternally Eucharistic and the sacrament of the Eucharist as given for us, the mode in which we can receive the life of God, in that way dignifying us and respecting us and actually communicating to us as we are, maybe we should then talk about the relationship between the sacraments and our eschatological fulfillment. In other words, between what we receive now from the church and through the church and what we will enjoy in the glory of heaven. Because maybe some people are already thinking along, well, don't the sacraments pass away? Don't, doesn't the Eucharist pass away and we enter into, in some ways, unmediated relationship with the Blessed Trinity? So what does this mean for the relationship between the sacraments and our fulfillment in divine glory? Perfect. Yeah, and, and Balthazar and Bogakov certainly are unique on this question, as opposed to the dominant Western tradition, as you could say, find in Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. So for Aquinas, he does say, although there's some nuance you could even say in, in Aquinas on this, that we go from a state of having the sacraments to the eschaton, which will be non-sacramental, right? Which will be a beatific vision, a face-to-face, unmediated vision of divine essence. It's actually complicated in Aquinas because he speaks quite clearly of the bread of angels, the way in which uh, there is a sort of last, the sort of the supper of the lamb that we find in the book of Revelation. So you can say there's this tension between this more bodily-less view of the eschaton, the sort of unmediated movement from shadows to direct, direct direct vision, or what you find in the book of he- Hebrews and the book of Revelation in particular, right? Which is very much focused on a liturgical sort of celebration, right? If you look how often the verb to eat is used in the book of Revelation, I think you'd be surprised, right? There's this sort of festal and, and almost, you could say, Eucharistic understanding of the Supper of the Lamb. So Bulgakov and Balthazar are emphasizing that poll quite clearly, yeah. that we don't move from Eucharist to non-Eucharist, right? But from a partial Eucharist to the fulfillment of the Eucharist, Mm. right? To the total perfect self-giving of the Son to the Church and the reception of the Church of the Son. And so what that means is that 
really, we don't have to depart from Aquinas on this, that the red sacrament, the, the thing of the sacrament, right, which for Aquinas we will only receive eschatologically, for Balthazar and Bogokov really is the thing itself, right, which is still the Eucharist, right? It's, it's now the way in which Christ's self-giving to the church is perfectly received, right? But now there's no longer that need for mediation, right? This disjunction between spirit and object, right? So now when the, the Eucharist is given, there's no way in which a finite spirit can sort of adequately receive it, right? There's always a disjuncture, right? In heaven, there's going to be a greater sort of capacity for reception, but it will still be, you could say, a Eucharistic giving. Of course, for both of them, we need to be careful about how much we could actually say. What does it actually look like? Right? What would be a heavenly Eucharist actually sort of appear to be? And they, they have sort of metaphors and images from the saints. Mechthild of Hackerborn uses a few. She has a vision of a celestial Eucharist, as you could say, the, the book of Revelation does. But they do want to say simply that it's not a sort of frozen, isolated vision of the divine essence, because the eschatological union is a union in and through Christ, mm-hmm. right? The humanity and the body of Christ do not disappear in heaven, right? Our union with God, you could say, is always Christologically mediated. And because of that, it's therefore a Eucharistic union. So you brought up Thomas there. If we can just maybe bring this back to Thomas a little bit, not asking you to, you know, represent all of Thomistic thought here, but to propose into the thought of Thomas something that Balthazar and Bokhagov are saying here, or at least strongly uh, implying, which is that our God is a Eucharistic God. Is there space within Thomas and maybe more of the sort of, I don't know how you put this, the traditional or uh, more kind of mainstream Western thought for that proposal? Yeah, I don't think there's anything necessarily clashing about these two different views, right? I think there's mm-hmm. a few points that, you know, a Thomist would disagree with and vice versa, but the genius of Thomas and the scholastic tradition more generally is what I call sort of divide and conquer approach, right? When it talks about God, it talks about God, right? And the Trinity, it talks about the Trinity, right? There's no ecclesiology, there's no sacramental theology in Thomas's treatment of the Trinity, for instance. Yeah. And yeah. when you get to the sacramental section of the Summa Theologica, there's not really a sort of retrospective glance at the Trinity or mm. creation. What Balthazar is more attuned to do is to say, what are the connections between those things? Yeah. Right. Well, finally, at the end of the Summa, we get to the sacraments. But I think Aquinas himself would know to get there, everything beforehand had to be just right in order to be able to say what you want to say there. Yeah. Right. If you want to say that God can, in fact, become flesh in Christ and Christ can give himself away Eucharistically, be received by the church in his body and blood. There's a lots of other things you have to say about creation. There's lots of things you have to say about the Trinitarian self-giving. There's lots of things you have to say about primary and secondary causality. There's lots of things you have to say. And Thomas happens to have said them. Yes. Right? So <laughs> it could be the case that it's just a really happy accident, but there's this per- almost perfect sort of synthesis between the yeah. sacramental theology of Thomas and his teaching on God and the Trinity. Or you could say that although he won't say it explicitly, there's clearly a mirroring that's happening. Yeah. It's something that just Balthazar and Bogakov just tease out a little more and make explicit. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the way you, you describe that with the scholastic tradition, this divide and conquer and one thing and then this thing and then this thing. Whereas anybody who's had the the joy and the privilege of breaking into Balthazar finds that everything is happening everywhere all the time in some way. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You know. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe a place to to end then is I want to bring up something that you point out and then kind of flip it and ask you about the flip of this. So here's here's what I'm thinking. You point out that the Eucharist has been central to piety, 
and peripheral to theology for the most part, right? It's the center of the life of faith, the practice of the faith, the pious life, and yet has been sort of on the outskirts of theological reflection. You want to argue that along with Bulkagov and Balthazar, that what is central to the faith and piety must also and should also be central dogmatically. But here's what I want to ask. I want to flip this a little bit. What do you think the most serious theological approach to the Eucharist could mean or might mean for the development of a deeper Eucharistic piety? Hmm. In other words, if we really did place the Eucharist centrally, dogmatically, what might that do for the, I don't know, the richness of the the pious Christian life? That's a great question. Yeah, I think you it would really be a need to sort of see the source and some of the Christian experiential life in the Eucharist as reverberating out, outwards, mm-hmm. right? That, and Balthazar in particular talks quite a bit about how we need a sort of Eucharistic form of ethics as well, right? The way in which we should understand our Christian mode of life is not simply that we have sort of natural law and divine commandments and we sort of need to negotiate a Christian ethics. That's all true. But he says, actually, the first and foremost, what we need to do is imitate and follow the Eucharistic Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? This, it, it can't be, again, this is isolated. It needs to permeate. If it's the source and summit, everything needs to be moving towards it. Just to connect it with this question of, of the eschaton, right? we talk about the Eucharist as a pignus, a pledge of future glory or a foretaste of future glory. Right. I want to play with that, right? What is a foretaste? A foretaste is not an appetizer, right? An appetizer <laughs> is, is like, you know, sort of fried mozzarella cheese, right? And then you eat lasagna, right? There's almost no relationship <laughs> between the two things. Except right? the, cheese. For- yeah. the cheese. The cheese. The okay, cheese. Lots okay, of cheese. Sal- salad and then okay, lasagna. Fair Let's enough. go with good that. Enough. Let's go good with enough. that. Good enough. Right. One thing and then you have another thing. A foretaste yeah. is, is a tasting before of the same thing. Hmm. Right, so eschatologically, we could say that there's a foretaste of the eschaton in the Eucharist. In other words, the Eucharist is already eschatological. Mm-hmm. I want to play with that then, how we understand the whole of the Christian life. Everything you could say is a foretaste of this Eucharistic moment of the Mass, right? All of the Christian life, our ethics, the way we treat one another, the way we understand self-sacrifice, self-giving, the way we understand Christ himself, his incarnation, the way we understand God, not sort of as an abstract principle, but as this infinite dynamism of self-giving needs to have this sort of Eucharistic flavor, if you will, this shape to it. Otherwise, that moment, again, will always be an exception. Mm. Friends, today my guest has been Jonathan Sorallo. We've been talking mostly from his Church Life Journal essay, The Key to Understanding God. You could find that, again, at the Church Life Journal. But also recommend to you his new book out with the University of Notre Dame Press, The Eucharistic Form of God, Hansers von Balthasar's Sacramental Theology. Jonathan, thank you so much for breaking open all of this rich, rich stuff with us and helping us to gain a little deeper understanding into the Eucharistic God as proposed to us through especially these two figures, Bolkakov and Balthazar. Thanks so much, Lenny, for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com. 
Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code REDEEMER. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God.